Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. What we've done is we've identified these five key values that just make NC4 who they are. We call them our DNA. It's interesting. I was a sophomore in high school when Watson and Crick's discovered the double helix that you see right there, which is the whole formation of the DNA strand. When that happened, nobody ever heard of DNA, except maybe researchers. But when that happened, when we began to realize that we have these distinctives ingrained in who we are, all of a sudden DNA became like a household word. Like everybody uses it, kids use it and so forth. Well, we said, well, you know, churches have DNA too, right? We have a soul. Every church is just a little bit different. So we wanted to go back pursuant to some prophetic words that we had and just find out like, okay, 39 years ago, what was the DNA of this church? And we identified five key values. And one of those values is our appreciation, our insistence upon generating, experiencing, finding the manifest presence of God. So NC4 is the church that recognizes and values as essential the manifest presence of God among us. Now, I want you to notice that I pointedly did not merely say the presence of God, okay? I use that phrase manifest presence, and I did that because both biblically and within church history, within practice of our spiritual lives, we find that there are different dimensions to the way the saints experience the presence of God, the way that we experience the presence of God. Even some non-saints can, can experience the presence of God, uh, okay? Now I'm gonna do this. See, typically in, in our kind of tribe of Christianity, what we usually do when we're talking about manifest presence is do a, a show and tell and invite people up and pray for them and some people swoon and some people, and, and I felt like the Lord said, don't do that this time. You know, we'll do that at Pentecost maybe or down the road a little bit, but, or maybe we'll just do it in service, but I felt to approach it this way. Now, this is either gonna work uh, and it'll be effective or you're gonna think I'm completely crazy. Is that okay? And you're not, I've not, this isn't the first time I put you in this position, all right? I, I sent this stuff to Pastor Ian to do in McCungy, and I had the sense like he was saying, you gotta be kidding me. So, <laughs> so bear with me, right? I, I think the Holy Spirit is in this. Years ago, I was in a church meeting where there was a woman who had recently experienced the infilling of the Holy Spirit, just, just alive for God. And, and she brought along her husband to the Sunday morning service. And he was from a more traditional expression of the body of Christ. So after the service, she comes up and she says, oh, the presence of God was so profound this morning. God was so present during the service. She was having uh, an experience of the presence of God. Well, her husband, who I, I have to admit had a little bit of an attitude, said to her, well, you know, uh, she, her, her husband said, well, God is present everywhere. He, he's never not present. I experience God everywhere. I'm not sure that I even know what you're talking about. And what I wanna say is he was right, but he was also wrong. Are, are you here? And, and see, uh, I, 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 he, he's never not present. I get that. And so God is present everywhere, but I, we need to differentiate between how God is present 
in different ways and at different moments. So I call this message three facets of the presence of God. When the woman's husband was talking about God's presence everywhere, he was talking about something that we refer to as God's omnipresence, okay? A few days ago, I was, uh, when we had a clear night, well, you haven't had many clear nights this year, when I was outside with my high-powered binoculars, gazing at the night sky, uh, looking at one of my favorite night sky objects. That is the galaxy called Andromeda. It's one of my favorite things to look at. So I'm looking at Andromeda. Now, through binoculars, it's kind of a smudge about this big and about this thick. It's like a glowing, undulating, kind of a long, lengthy thing of light. But I have seen it, this defined, in better telescopes. As a matter of fact, down in South Mountain, I've seen that, that image. That's Andromeda, okay? Now, as you look through the scope, you see a mass of light, an undulating kind of glowing smudge that looks about three inches long and an inch thick, and it pulsates deep in the universe. That's a different galaxy. It's another galaxy. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, has 250 billion stars. What we seen this morning, we can try and count the stars. Our galaxy has 250 billion stars. But as I look across that length of Andromeda, right there that you're looking at. It exists right now. Right now it exists and it's out there. And as you look across it, there are one trillion stars that you're looking at. Whoa, one trillion stars. And as I looked at it and I'm laying on my back, I realized God is there. God created it. Something came over me and I was filled with this awe. That's an experience of the omnipresence of God because God is there right now, but God is here right now. So this is the omnipresence of God. Now watch this from here. Okay, see, uh, there's stars here, right? It goes all the way across and there's stars here. It takes the light that's generated in the star here, 2.5 million years to get to here. So I say that again, it takes the light generated right here 2.5 million years to get to here. Now, I can look at that in one glance with my eyes and it tells me the magnificence of our God. That's an experience of the omnipresence of God. Okay, God is here, God is there. That's the omnipresence. Omnipresence is important because it's the presence of the creator. Now, Paul in Romans one declares that this experience of creation, if it's ignored, if we look at it and say, ha, there is no God. If it's ignored by us, Paul says in the book of Romans chapter one, he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, ignore it. He says, for what can be known about God, this is for everybody, not just Christians, for saints and non-saints, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature are clearly perceived ever since the creation of the universe in the things that have been created by him so that all people are without excuse. Huh? It's the very basis upon which we can be judged is our inability or our willing 
ignorance of how magnificent God is when we look at his creation. So the omnipresence of God is the truth that God is everywhere all at once. Here's the thing about omnipresence. God is present whether we recognize it or not. In other words, God's present in Andromeda, God's present in the microbiology of the fauna of South America. It doesn't matter. He's present whether we realize it or not. It is who he is as our creator. So, but the thing about the manifest presence of God is different because God's manifest presence has to have a, a human referent. Somebody has to see it. The manifest presence of God is his revealed, disclosed presence in the right here and right now. When that woman said, she said, wow, God was so present. She was talking about a time and a place and a human heart. Are you there? An experience of God. So there is this other thing called the manifest presence of God. God shows himself at a fixed point in time and space. He meets people. He hits Abraham with his Holy Spirit and says, get your family and get up and move to a land in which I will show you. God still does that today. Are you there? The thing about the manifest presence of God is we just know that it's real. And this because that's the job of the Holy Spirit. And in just a few moments, Delaney is going to make sense of all this manifest stuff and in terms of how we worship and the church is so important to the realization of that because there are angels in the architecture. <laughs> I hope you heard that message a couple weeks ago. So I was thinking, okay, so I showed you Andromeda and I'm thinking like, what can I use as a picture of someone experiencing the real presence of God? If you're slain in the spirit and you're laying on the floor. No one wants to have their picture taken. You know what I mean? It's, it's <laughs> so we don't do that for the most part, that kind of stuff. But I wanted to do it with a piece of art. Now, there's a favorite sculpture I have. It's in a, in a church in Rome. It's sculpted by an artist by the name of Bernini, who sculpted all kinds of stuff across Italy a couple centuries ago. And it's a sculpture. It's called The Ecstasy of St. Teresa of Avila. And it's a sculpture depicting an episode in prayer experienced by St. Teresa of Avila as she describes in her journals. Yeah, Pastor Ian would say, Avilla. I've been there. It's in, that place is in Spain. Okay, so Teresa was like a Spanish 16th century Carmelite nun. I like her because she was a mystic with a real sense of humor. All right. Like one time... She was riding in her cart and she fell down in the cow manure and the mud and she got on her knees and raised her hands to God and says, Jesus, it's no wonder that you have so few friends. Look at how you treat us. You know, that kind of thing. Because she had a, a Lieutenant Dan kind of relationship with God. Anyway, so some of you know what that means. All right. She was in prayer and she has a vision of an angel with a fiery spear. Now this is the depiction. Look at her face and you can see the angel. And she says this, I was experiencing God and I saw an angel and in his hand, a long spear of gold. Now watch, she says this, and you can look at the sculpture and she says, and at the iron's point, there seemed to be a little fire. And he appeared to me to be thrusting the spear at times into my heart and to pierce my very insides. And when he drew out the spear, he seemed to draw the insides out with it and to leave me 
with a fire and a passion and a great love for God. She said, the pain was so great that it made me moan and yet so surpassed was its sweetness, I could not wish to be rid of it. And I realized that my soul is satisfied now with nothing less than God himself. See, that, that's from her, her autobiography. And I'm thinking, whoa. Now I understand that's mystical language, but you see, it takes art to be able to depict something like that. And so Bernini picked up on that, all right? And so it's mystical language, but here is a woman experiencing the manifest presence of God. She's in prayer, God is visiting her and sending her an angel. And this is the artistic expression of that. Okay, so we have the omnipresence and the manifest presence. We're gonna go on to something else. Lastly, I wanna mention a third facet of the presence of God. It's a word that we use all the time, especially as charismatics. Everybody's used this word. It's the word glory, all right? How many have heard the word glory, right? We speak of the glory of God, but rarely do we ever ask ourselves if there's a difference between the presence of God and the glory of God. Well, in Exodus 33:18, Moses, you know, he's up on the mountain, you see the Ten Commandments, or he's up on the mountain, and then Moses says something that's really startling. Now, remember, he is in the presence of God. He's having a conversation with God. It's the manifest presence of God. It's in time and space. It's there, he's there. And then he says this to God, show me your glory. Isn't that interesting? Show me your glory. See, this begs a really important question. Is experiencing the presence of God and experiencing the glory of God necessarily the same thing? All right, what's the difference? Biblically, is there a difference? Now, the word glory in both Hebrew and Greek essentially mean the same thing. It means heaviness, weightiness, a gravitas. I call it the stamp of God's character. So there's my definition of the glory of God. It's the impacting weight of God's character that insists that my character be changed likewise. And see, so you can experience the manifest presence of God. Saul did, right? He, he prophesied naked all night with the prophets, but it never changed his character. Are you there? So we can experience this presence of God but refuse to be transformed. Glory is the transforming apparatus of the Holy Spirit. Glory is all about transformation. It's all about us changing. An old saint named Arthur Burt used to say, the presence of God is a gift. He'd say, but it's free, but the glory of God is gonna cost you something. Are you with me on this? All right. Now, I put it this way, the presence of God encounters us, the glory of God insists that I have to be transformed in his image. So I wanna put one last piece of art up. How many have heard of the artist Salvador Dali? All right, most of the people, probably the most famous artist of the last century. My father was in Americana Hotel in New York, in an elevator alone, Salvador Dali walked in and walked over to him and put out his hand my father shook his hand and he said, my name is Dali and I am the greatest living artist in the world. <laughs> That's what he said to him, just typical Dali. Anyway, <laughs> true story. Okay, 
Dali was, when he was young, his early art, when he became recognized and so forth, some of it was pornographic, most of it was psychoanalytic. He was on this fierce artistic struggle to understand himself, his father. He was politically active, but he became disillusioned with politics completely over the carnage of the Spanish Civil War. And he was always brilliant, but crazy, uh, flamboyant. That didn't change, but something changed. One day, he was sitting in a train station in the town of Perpignan, which is on the French-Spanish border. And suddenly, he was caught up, like St. Teresa, into an ecstasy. Right? He was caught up into this mystical experience and it changed his life and it changed his art. Right? He painted what he experienced two years later. It's a large painting, it's huge. It's on display in Cologne in Germany and this is what he painted about that experience. Okay. The name of the painting is La Gare de Papignon which means the Papignon train station. Anyway, so the figure at the top of the painting is this dark Dali, this is him, he's painting himself. Here's a locomotive, right? And the painting moves this way. And so the figure is Dali in darkness in the train station, and suddenly he's transported there. Now, if you look at that position, there's light emanating there, and he's being drawn in to the light that's emanating outward. But here, watch this, this right here, is the crucified Jesus. There's his face, crown of thorns, his arms are coming out. And so he's drawn in to the very heart of Jesus, this agnostic, crazy man. And here we have peasants praying on the two sides. Over here we have uh, toil, the curse of toil, and the curse of lust over here. And on the bottom, we have a lake and a boat on the lake and a woman standing in the boat. Could have been his mother, could be Mary, could be the church. But the boat is on a lake and the lake signifies peace between life and death. And in the center of the painting is Christ himself. Now, from that point onward, Dali's art changed because his life changed. He began painting his most famous Cubist crucifixions I could take you through all of them, the sacrament of the Last Supper, which I have on my wall. And faith and sacrament become an important focus suddenly in his life. He was still flamboyant. He still had a public profile and all the rest of it. And he keeps this side of himself almost private, except to certain friends like Pope John XXIII and others. And he marries his lifelong mistress uh, in the church for the first time in his life. And and he ends up being transformed. I believe this is a picture of glory. Huh? This is a picture. I know it's abstract and so forth. This is really important. Why did I do this? Why did I take this route this morning? Do I want you all to be astronomers? Do I want you all to become 16th century saints or world famous artists? See, here's the deal. The normative, normative, normative place and time to experience what all this suggests is in the worship, prayer, and the assembly of the body of Christ in the local church. You don't have to be an astronomer to get it. 
You don't have to be a world famous artist to get this. You don't have to be a 16th century Carmelite saint to get it. All you've got to do to get God is to draw near to him. And the best place to draw near to him is with his people. Are you there? So I want to bring all the gravitas of that, all of what I showed you, because these people are famous in history, even Eddington, who discovered Andromeda. They're all famous and so forth. And they're wonderful things that these people experienced and did. But I can get even richer than that by worshiping the Lord my God and drawing into his presence with God's people. That's the job of the church. That's why uh, the author of Hebrews says, forsake you not the assembling of yourselves together as is the custom of some. Because there's a jeopardy in it that we're missing what these people got that we can have. And I'm going to ask Delaney to come up and conclude in developing that. In Jesus' name. Today's topic is one of my favorites. For 31 years, the cry of my heart has been Psalm 27.4. One thing I have asked of the Lord, this is what I desire, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all of the days of my life, to gaze upon his beauty and to seek him in his temple. This one thing, his presence, let it be all of our hearts cry to seek him together his presence. I really appreciate Pastor Jack's use of the images this morning, the artistic images especially, um, because I have an artist, resident artist at home. But that really helps us to get a grasp of these uh, concepts of God's presence. My job is to talk about the manifest presence of God. Now, how many have been to cathedrals that are works of art in themselves, visiting them in Rome? They're amazing. You walk in and the first word out of your mouth is usually, wow. They have artwork by the masters, priceless sculptures, vaulted ceilings. Every detail is meant to evoke a sense of majesty, wonder, and awe. They're beautiful. Surely the king of glory would prefer to show his manifest presence in a structure like that. I mean, the kings of the world, don't they surround themselves with only the finest of amenities? But I remember as a teenager on a missions trip, we visited a tiny church in the slums of right outside Mexico City. And the open sewage was running right outside the church door. The floors were just dirt. Overhead, the only part that was covered was with the tarp, the pews, simple planks of wood placed on cinder blocks. But yet when we began to worship, even though we spoke different languages, when we began to worship, the manifest presence of God showed up there and we experienced his, him moving in a powerful way. What attracts the God of glory, the one who made the beautiful universe we just saw? What attracts him to a slum in Mexico City? What attracts the presence of God here? Well, we know it's not the structures, but the, the contents, the lives of those within the structures. But why? Why does God even want or bother 
to make himself known to us in this way? Well, to answer that, we need to look how he's interacted with mankind throughout history. We can go back all the way to Adam, but I'm going to start with Jacob. Jacob was traveling by himself, and he has an encounter with God. In the dream, the Lord shows up and is standing right beside him. And he says to Jacob, I am the Lord, your God, the God of your father, Abraham and Isaac. The land on which you are sleeping, I'm giving to you and your ancestors. And not only that, you're going to spread out to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. You are going to inherit all of this. And your offspring will be more than the dust of the earth. They will be like the dust of the earth. I will bless the world through you. And that's what God is still doing today with the church. He's blessing the world through us. When Jacob woke up, he said, surely this is the house of God. So he named this place Bethel. So what's interesting about Bethel, if you look at a Bible map of the promised land, the inheritance of the various tribes, Bethel is centrally located on that map. What a picture of the house of God at the center of the inheritance. He was to be the focus. So moving on, the Israelites were held captive in Egypt for 400 years, and he brings them out of that bondage. He does this in order to give them that inheritance. But the inheritance was much more than a land flowing with milk and honey. So much more. Their greatest inheritance was God himself in their midst. He instructed Moses to build a tabernacle, each detail laid out because what Moses built mirrored was a copy of what actually exists in heaven. And the priests served there. They fulfilled their roles and functions of ministering to the Lord, performing sacrifices and the various duties that they had. Once again, the placement of God's tabernacle was in the center of the camp. All the other families were gathered around. Their tents were placed all around that tabernacle. This is the reality from which they were to operate God was to be the center. His presence was to be the center of all they did. The way they worshiped, he was the only one they worshiped. The way they did life together, his presence was to affect how they spoke, how they conducted themselves. And it goes the same for us today. God's covenant with Israel, it included a long list of blessings. And as long as they served him, they were to receive this long list of blessings. But right one of the most beautiful blessings in that list are the words, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul will not reject you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. So when we move into the New Testament, the book of John, we see the words, the word took on flesh. It's talking about Jesus. And he dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. That's the Greek word that was used. He fulfilled all of the requirements of the Old Testament sacrificial system. He brought and enacted a new covenant, a new way of doing things through his sacrifice. If you have your Bibles today, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter 2. And we're going to be reading from verse 1 to 10. 
Even though Christ made this new covenant, God's desire didn't stop. He continued to want to dwell with those who enter into covenant with him. And we're going to see this in this passage. Verse 1, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Notice all of these sins are very divisive to the body of Christ. Get rid of those. There's no place for those here. There's so much more that God has for us. Like newborn infants long for, crave the pure spiritual milk. And he's talking about the word, which Pastor Ian preached on last week. That by it you may grow up into salvation. Verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, and this is talking about coming to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. What an image. This is the, the word in Greek, the same word, oikos, which Pastor Grubby preached on in his, his message, Angels in the Architecture, just a few weeks back. You are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, out of that old way of living. He called you out of that darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but praise God, you are now. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Why does God want us to experience his manifest presence? Because this is part of his eternal plan all along. God's design and desire has always been and forever will be to dwell among his people. This is his plan. Before the birth of creation, he desired to have a people who were made in his image, set apart for him, and recognizing that they were called and designed for a purpose, to fulfill a destiny they were created for in Christ. They were to enjoy God all the days of their life. And that's what we are called to do. But this plan to dwell among his people came at a very great cost. It cost him the life of his very own son who laid down his life as a sacrifice for us. And as we come to him, as we accept that sacrifice for the only way for the forgiveness of sins and for salvation, we in turn surrender all. We lay down our very lives for him to use. And our laid down lives become the living stones built upon the precious cornerstone of Christ. And the result 
is an enduring architectural masterpiece, not subject to the destructive forces of this world. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. The skilled hands of the master architect and builder, they're working to create something that far surpasses anything that man could create, far surpasses in splendor, glory, in beauty, in wisdom. He's the God of the universe. He knows what he's doing. He's placing each stone, each of us, where we need to be so that we may be built up to display his glory. And not only that, we assume the role as a holy nation, a priesthood called to him to serve him, offering up spiritual sacrifices now. Jesus did away with the old sacrificial system. What are our spiritual sacrifices? How do we live this out? Well, Grubby mentioned a few. Worship and prayer, absolutely key. Our very lives, we worship God with. With our voices, we worship him with. But not only that, when we come together, Trisha gave a word of prophecy today. This is another form of a spiritual sacrifice that is pleasing to God. And each one of you here, you have been given gifts by the Holy Spirit. You possess something in you that nobody else can do the way that you are going to do it. This is a gift from God. And when you are functioning in that role, when you're fulfilling that, whatever that is he's created you to do, it not only blesses those around you, it blesses the heart of God himself. And he receives that as an offering, as a sacrifice, a pleasing aroma to him. I remember one time we were up front here and uh, it was a pre-service prayer and worship and one individual had the anointing the gift of intercession when she began to speak immediately i sensed a change in the atmosphere it was like heaven was pressing in as she prayed that is the manifest presence of god when we responding to us when we operate in the way we were made to. This is God with us. He desires this for us. He desires us to walk in this and to know this and to be secure in him all of our days. But as for me, in Psalm 73, 28, as for me, God's presence is my good. New covenant, as for us, God's presence is our good our highest good. All other pursuits file in behind this. We're pursuing him, we're obeying his word, and we're walking in his ways as a family. If you're listening online or if you're here today and you've never made Jesus your Lord and King, this is your opportunity to do so right now. If you hear him speaking to your heart, calling your name, all you have to do is pray this prayer with me and he'll come into your life. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I come to you now and I know that I cannot save myself. Please forgive me for all my sins. I'm so sorry. Thank you for dying and raising again from the grave. You are my desire now. Come into my life. 
Fill me with your Holy Spirit and teach me your ways. Be my Lord and King forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.